Pubut scholarship about digital culture consists of, if you put Latinx studies at the center of it, about this and many other important topics, is this conversation with Ibarchan López, is this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with me today Ivan Char López. Ivan is an assistant professor in digital studies at the Department of American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, where he is also a faculty associate at the Teresa Lozano Long Institute of Latin American Studies at the same university. Before starting at UT Austin in 2020, between 2018 and 2020, he was a Mellon Diversity Postdoctoral Associate in Latina Latino Studies and in the Department of Science and Technology Studies at Cornell University. Ivan obtained his BA in History of the Americas with magna cum laude distinction at University of Puerto Rico in Rio Piedras. In 2012, he got his master's in history also at the University of Puerto Rico in Rio Piedras. And in 2018, his doctorate, his PhD in American culture at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor with a graduate certificate in Latina and Latino studies. Even though he's in the early stages of his career, he's already published several important articles, in particular the one that came out last year in Social Studies of Science, Latina, Latino, Latine, Technoscience, Labor, Race and Gender in Cybernetics and Computing. He has co-authored the 2020 book Techno Precarious that was published by Goldsmith Press and MIT Press Future Media Series that was co-written with a number of very distinguished co-authors, including Lisa Nakamura, Mackenzie Work, and Sylvia Lindner. And he has a book under contract with MIT Press called The Cybernetic Border, Drones, Technology, and Intrusion. Ivan, welcome to El Café Latinx. Muchas gracias, Pablo. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and just a correction, it's with Duke University Press, my my book. Oh, sorry. What did I say? MIT Press. I'm sorry. I read no, MIT Press, but I apologize for that. That's fine. Um, so, so Ivan, tell us, how did it all begin? That was, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Um, wow, there's multiple origin stories that I can tell. Um, uh, one would be uh, my grandmother was a scholar as well. I mean, she's still alive, but no longer practicing. Um, and she studied 
pharmaceuticals as a bachelor's and then handed over her diploma to her father and said, here's your diploma and went off to study social work uh, in the 1940s and 1950s, then went on to study sociology. Um, and she was very actively involved with the Socialist Party in Puerto Rico. So growing up, I grew up surrounded by her library and I grew up watching her in front of her computer with like MSDOS and green lettering. And she's like clicking away, writing things. Um, and I knew that I wanted to be a writer um, because I wanted to kind of just be like her. Um, and she was, I would say that first moment of inspiration, um, both combining the intellectual work, but also the political work um, of working with marginalized communities. Um, and that's kind of like the, what kind of planted the seed in, in my life as, as far as like thinking, even considering becoming a professor. But I actually wanted to be a musician and write scores for films. So that was my first major in, in undergrad and then um, added history, then took out music, left history. Um, and then in my bachelor's, um, and it was, a, I was gonna say maybe about 2006, 2007, there was this incident between a police officer, actually a group of three police officers and a civilian. And ended up um, in the death of the civilian. Um, and that was recorded on a handheld camera, um, not a smartphone, not a moment for smartphones, um, at least not in Puerto Rico. And that video was given over to Univision in Puerto Rico. They transmitted it. Someone recorded the transmission and then uploaded it to um, a very unknown little platform called YouTube. Um, and that became, um, that was watched for a, a lot. Um, and we're talking a viral video in Puerto Rico at that moment, we're talking tens of thousands of views. But between that and then the transmission, um, that led to a bunch of protests, calling for police reform and protests against police brutality. So that uh, happened as I was kind of finishing my, my bachelor's and I was already um, in the middle of the kind of preparing my honors thesis. Um, and I thought of writing about, about it, but then decided against it. Um, because I was interested in thinking about transgressions and, and what is being transgressed um, that generates the action of a police, of the police against a citizen. What is being transgressed when violence is being recorded and being fed through you know, the press? What is being transgressed when um, what is seen as abuse is also then documented and then kind of presented to the state. Um, and that comes out of my work with um, a historian in Puerto Rico, um, uh, Mayra Rosario Urrutia, who was really influential in my kind of development, um, my intellectual development. And she was very informed by Foucault's um, scholarship 
um, thinking about crime, thinking about um, epidemics, thinking about a whole host of things. Um, and that, um, even though I didn't do anything with it in undergrad, that became my master's thesis. So I wrote a master's thesis in history about a historical event that is recent. Um, so thinking about what it is to write about a history of the present, in the present, not not as Foucault would do it, right? That it's you know going centuries to the past to think about the present, but I'm like, no, let's think about the past, but think about it now um, with things that are happening now. Um, and and that that's kind of like by that time, as I was already doing my master's, I already knew that I wanted to do a PhD. I knew I wanted to get out of Puerto Rico um, and learn from other folks. Um, my mentor there, Maida, she would tell me like, you know, I can get you to an ex to a point, but this is not my area. Like you need you need to work with folks that are in like digital studies or media studies or or communication. She didn't quite um, know where to place me. Um, and and uh, yeah, I guess I guess my train of thought is kind of there. All right. So, so it's very interesting how you're describing your journey because so it is not very far intellectually where you were from your current work on the cybernetic border, right? So there is a cybernetic feedback loop and there is the issue of transgression. It's a different kind of transgression. Right, but it's still the issue of trespassing, at least, or transgressing. Um, how do the topics that you choose, right, come to you? Um, oh, that's a great question. Um, I I'm constantly um, thinking about. Power. I mean, this most likely comes from having, you know, growing up in two families that are at diametrical, uh, at opposite sides of a political question, which is the status of independence for Puerto Rico. So my father's family is capitalist, conservative. My mom's family is atheist, um, socialist, communist during the Cold War. So like having grown up with these two families, I was always hearing kind of these two positions circulate. So that the, the way that folks are imagined as transgressive or as um, breaking rules and breaking boundaries and um, and aiming to have better lives, that was just kind of in, in the conversation always, or at least in the back of my mind. So when I get to a topic, I, I think about, about transgression, I think about norms, I think about rules, I think about orders and what are, what are the practices, what is the labor necessary to produce order? And then also what is the labor and the practices necessary to undo that order? Um, which is not, not very difficult. Producing order is actually harder, um, I feel. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested in that. Um, so the topic of 
of this civilian who was just participating in a like a quinceanera event. Um, and then he's like savagely beaten. Um, that, that, I don't know, that struck to me as, first of all, unjust. And I'm interested in like, well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with this, but what produced it? What are the, either the social forces or what are the um, different dynamics or different elements of the situation that led to it, that generated it? So, um, so either in that case or in the case of the cybernetic border, I'm interested in thinking critically about how even when systems are supposed to be these neutral um, articulators of order, um, they're already entangled with, um, with values, with um, particular ideologies um, or political objectives. And I'm interested then in like making them stand out. So opening the black box in that case is showing what are those, those politics? What are those um, imaginaries that are feeding into this system? Um, and then calling them out. So that's sometimes as a scholar, that could be, that could be um, not necessarily the most um, successful way of, of going about it. Because um, it could put you at odds at times with with certain powers that be, um, but um, but I think it's the work that has to be done. Certainly so. And um, so you're in Puerto Rico. You're finishing your master's in history. Could could have well been in sociology, given the right recency of the topic. Um, you go to Michigan. Why Michigan? Why American studies? As your advisor there said, right? Could have been digital studies. Could have been communication. Um, where are you tired of the, you know, Caribbean weather that you wanted to go to the, you know, Midwest, uh, have a full Midwest experience? How was that part of your journey? Yeah, I mean. Uh... I used to joke with my friends that I'm a bit of an odd Puerto Rican because I, I like cold weather and I enjoy it and I enjoy snows and all that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, sure, that's part of it, um, but I'm not all of it. Um, actually, it's it's I ended up at Michigan in part because of serendipity. So serendipity because I applied to grad school my first round. I applied to four schools only. Um, I didn't have a mentor to kind of like show me how do you write a, you know, a statement of purpose? How do you write any of those things initially? Um, and I applied to four schools in, and one of them was Michigan. The other was actually UT Austin. It was a um, history program. And here I am at, at UT Austin now. Um, but in that first round, I didn't I didn't get into any program, and I applied to Michigan for only one reason. I gave a I was invited as part of a group of um, of grad students from the University of Puerto Rico. We were invited to present at a grad student conference in Michigan, and as part of like an exchange program that um, some of the grad students there had developed, um, and then grad students from Michigan went to Puerto Rico, did the same. So in that trip to to Michigan, 
I gave presented a paper on this event on the murder of um, Miguel Cáceres Cruz in 2007 and like the protests that came out of it had the role of social media and all of it etc and one person was in the audience that day and um, I mean a bunch of people were there but one of them was um, Jeff Ely who's a historian of Europe of fascism German history um, and I had read his book for one of my grad classes um, it's a fantastic book that uh, I'm Actually, a, a Crooked Line is the title of that book. Um, amazing book on historiography. And anyway, he's at the at the at the in the audience. He listened to the paper and went to my professors who were there, professors from Puerto Rico. And he told them, "You have to have this student apply to our program. He needs to come to Michigan." Um, so my Mentors were like, you know, this is kind of unusual. Like, I, I don't know this happening ever, but they want you here. So I applied that first round. I didn't get into history. <laughs> so <laughs> um, probably part of it was I'm proposing a project on social media activism and all that. And even though it was somewhat historical, just like you said, this sounds very kind of sociology, maybe anthro, maybe communication. Um, second moment of serendipity. Um, I thought that I was not going to go into grad school, whatever. I, I didn't get in. Not going to happen. I'm thinking of doing something else. Um, and I'm in Old San Juan and I stumble across Larry LaFontaine Stokes, professor from American culture. He is just sitting on a bench. I think he was like having ice cream. And I'm on the phone with my wife. And he's like, Ivan, and we had never met ever in person. But we were friends on Facebook. Um, and he knew of me because of my political um, student activist work during the student strikes at the UPR in the 2009, 2010, 2011. Um, so that's how we knew each other virtually. So he stopped me and he told me, I heard that you didn't get into Michigan. What's your project? I told him his project and he said, oh, that's an American studies project. You need to apply to my program. So him, um, he read you know, some of my materials and gave me feedback. Um, Beatriz um, Ramirez Betances, another um, friend from Puerto Rico also read my materials um, and gave me a lot of feedback and like really pushed me to like, pin down things. Um, I really appreciated that. I have a bunch of other friends that really supported me in that process. And then lo and behold, I got into Michigan. So that's how I ended up there. Like I didn't initially think I'm going to go to Michigan to do a PhD. It was just a series of like random occurrences. Fascinating. And occurrences might have been random, but yeah. that were highly influenced by relationships with mentors. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was it was having those relations with those folks that allowed me to then get there. Um, I mean, at, by that time when I applied, I, I already started a, like a blog and I wrote about a whole host of things from films to protests to music. 
And I wrote, you know, these periodic uh, entries since like 2010, early 2010, 2009, maybe. And so people knew me because I wrote this blog. And then I became part of the student movement and I was I was getting interviews with people and going on the radio and speaking with folks. Um, and I became a columnist for a small independent cultural magazine called Ochenta Grados. And that again kind of put me, um, make, gave me some visibility. Um, so that of course allowed some folks within the Puerto Rican kind of intellectual scene to know me and know of me. And then of course their relations kick in and like, um, so it's all of those things. Yeah, for sure. And so in your experience, what makes for a good mentor thinking about it from the perspective of the mentee? Wow. Um, I mean, thinking about the range of mentors I've had, like Mayra Rosario Putia, Lisa Nakamura at Michigan, Alex Stern as well, like all of them gave me, gave me room to explore. Um, I like to joke that I have a like a hyperactive mind and like um, not that I have ADHD, ADHD um, but um, but it is like I'm always like thinking about um, connections um, and thinking about a range of things um, and they just gave me room to explore those connections to make those connections and those relations. And if that means bringing in scholarship from political theory or from anthropology or from um, feminist SDS or from a range of areas and disciplines and fields, then so be it, like though it's fine. Um, and that allowed my scholarship then to um, draw from a range of perspectives and methods and framings and ways of understanding phenomena that maybe if a mentor is more interested in like disciplining the mentee um, in the Foucauldian sense, um, then, then it's not maybe not that generative. Um, so that's that worked for me though. But I also know that that doesn't necessarily work for other mentees because maybe given too much freedom, it's a bit overwhelming. Um, whereas for me, like I thrive in that being overwhelmed, maybe, maybe. And then turning the tables now that you are a mentor yourself, um, how do you develop uh, mentor-mentee relationships? What have been some ideas, some principles that have helped you in that sense? Um, something that has been important for me is, is making sure that that relationship, the mentor-mentee relationship is grounded in care. And that that is the first organizing principle and not just having someone go into a profession or someone go into a career, but rather supporting the person. Um, and then once that is kind of, that caring relation is 
established, then you can do other things. But if the person is not well and is not being cared and it's not even caring for themselves, then they can't do anything else. They won't be able to produce the materials that you want them to produce to you know, achieve the benchmarks that the university wants them to, to achieve. So, so that's where I start. It's about caring. So all of the meetings I have with my mentors, they always start with just general conversations of how they're going, how they're doing. Maybe I remind, you know, I, I'm reminded of something that they told me recently or of something they're doing recently. So then I ask them about it and just thinking about them as just more complex and elaborate individuals than just grad student coming in to meet with me, maybe because they're doing a doctoral exam. Um, or they're developing a research project, et cetera. Um, and then the other thing that has been really, it was great for me, it was my experience with the precarity lab at Michigan. And then even after I graduated Michigan, um, and this I learned really well from, from Lisa Nakamura, um, is creating spaces of collaboration where the mentor is not does not hold the position of the sage, but the mentor is actually a role that is interchangeable. Um, the mentor-mentee relation is interchangeable. And I learn from Lisa as much as Lisa might learn from me as we collaborate and work together on a project. Um, so I created a lab at Cornell and then I keep I keep running the lab here at IUT and then I have grad students and undergrads in the lab and we do work together and we discuss ideas together and we work on ideas that they brought to the lab or that I bring to the lab. So it doesn't matter from where the idea is coming from. Um, we all listen to one another um, and support one another's interests and, um, and curiosities. Now, the notion of a lab is not nearly as common in the humanities or in the humanistic social sciences as it is in the natural or physical sciences or in engineering for that matter. Why a lab? I mean, what does the designation of a lab do for your collective? Yeah, so, so I, I really like that last part of the question, right? For the collective. And that's that's actually how I start thinking about the lab is thinking about it as a collective, not necessarily as a lab. But I'm also very well aware that there are these funding structures and there are these like these ways that in academia certain ideas gain currency for a moment. So the lab is one of those. Like there are so many labs now. <laughs> Um, to the point that we might say, like, maybe that it's like there's oversaturation. Should we, maybe we should think critically about the lab as an organizing rubric or as an organizing lens. Think about the politics of the lab. Um, and that's part of what, you know, we did in Precarity Lab is like, we are a lab, but we're also going to deconstruct the lab, the lab as a mode of production. Um, so the lab gives our collectivity that kind of sense of, of, of recognition from certain organizations and institutions, even while what we do in the lab isn't necessarily 
classic lab stuff. I mean, we don't have any, of course, we don't have like a, you know, um, like animal samples or any of that. Um, and the other thing that we, we don't do in our lab is that I'm not, we don't just work on what I want and what I tell people to do. Um, they're not just assisting me and giving me support for my research, but rather we're all working together in producing research and producing knowledge. Um, so that that does, I feel like that comes out a bit of the lab model, but I think it also comes out of more of a feminist lab model of thinking about how we're all working collaboratively and we're all contributing and we're all putting in labor into this. And it's important that that labor is made visible and is recognized and it's legitimated and validated. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, um, that's what I would say about the lab. And in your interactions with colleagues in the natural um, and physical sciences um, at UT or at other you know, places, do conversations arise about what is similar and what is very different about the lab in the humanities or humanistic social sciences on the one hand, than in the more traditional sciences? Um, I haven't come across folks in the natural sciences as much. That's in part because, um, you know, COVID started in 2020. I got here at UT in the fall. Um, I was at COVID University for a year, basically. Like I was at my home doing things, um, teaching, doing research. And I still had lab meetings in the spring of 2021, but everything was digital. I mean, everything was online on Zoom. Um, so I slowly got it, got into being in the university physically and on campus in the fall of 2021. And it's been kind of a slow process of getting to know faculty here. So my, my interaction has been mostly with folks in um, what's here called the College of Liberal Arts. So folks in um, American studies, of course, but also folks in history, folks in um, English um, and rhetoric, um, some folks from the Moody School of Communication um, and the I School, the Information School. So not haven't interacted much with natural science folks, um, but in the in my conversations with folks that are interested in doing collaborative research, um, they're they they have a similar question to you. It's like, well, I mean, that's it's unusual that we don't see this happening often, and and I mean, and how does that work? Like, how do you because the universities are geared and the the way that faculty achieve promotion and tenure is through the individual body of work to you know the single author especially in the humanities the single author monograph the single author article so what i've what i've done is i found a way to do that while at the same time doing the co-writing um, and co-authoring with grad students um, so in some sense, I'm actually doing more labor in shorter span of time. Um, and I'm also like thinking critically now about that, about, you know, 
acceleration of production and why and maybe how we might find ways to slow down productivity. Um, and in part, I'm able maybe to do that because I'm already achieving the milestones I'm supposed to achieve. So having kind of having ticked those boxes, now it's like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the sandbox and experiment here for a bit and build sand castles and, and see what comes up or other sand figures. I don't know. Now, what you're describing, I've heard and I've seen play out in several other universities, this sort of um, I could say tension, duality, contradiction. Um, that arose during COVID of, on the one hand, an acceleration in the rate of production, on the other hand, repeated calls for slowing down, taking care of oneself, taking care of others, and the assumption that if you accelerate production, in part, you are neglecting or at least not paying enough attention or as much attention to other facets of your life or other people's lives, those who are around you. Um, do you think there is that sort of contradiction in today's academy in the US at least? Um, if so, where do you think it's gonna go? How are you gonna think is how you think it's going to evolve? Um short answer, yes, I do think that that's playing out in the US Academy and in the how acceleration has led to huge. Uh, numbers of folks leaving um, academia, both at the grad student level, but even even um, people that, that already had their careers, either as lecturers or, or, or as tenure faculty. I've seen all of those. Um, there's also something to be said about the kind of neoliberalization of, the, of US academia through lecturer positions and more contingent faculty. And that's also, hurting significantly um, uh, significantly the kind of the quality of life of people. Um, and it's become, there's like, a, there's a way in which um, I'm able to do the work that I do in part because of all of those unjust, precar precarious generating structures. So deaccelerating, I think, deaccelerating academia or deaccelerating production can maybe generate pressures as well on, on um, higher education, especially on administrators. Um, and also, the, if we deaccelerate, then we can also support those contingent faculty in their struggles. And we're seeing them pop up. We're seeing strikes pop up in multiple universities all across the US. Um, so I think, I think the attention to care, both at the individual, but at a collective community sense, I think it's, it's correct and I support it. And, and I think that's the way to go. Um, because otherwise, um, otherwise, we're just um, going to be stuck in these accelerated routines of production and precarization. Okay. Now, shifting topics, the nature of your work 
puts you you know, in conversations with topics that are very current, that as you said, are very political. Um, many, you know, humanists and social sciences, scientists, um, you know, examine issues like the making of order, um, but might choose topics or phenomena um, that are less um, politically and culturally charged, like for instance, the issue of border, immigration, etc. What kinds of challenges and opportunities have you faced in trying to do this kind of work? And in a way, if I understand you know, what you've been trying to do, in part at least, there is also public facing that is trying to contribute to public good in addition to you know, contributing to scholarship and knowledge. So can you reflect with us a little bit on the nature of doing this kind of work and challenges and opportunities that arise from that? Yeah. Um, so when I when I started the project, I wasn't, I didn't necessarily think initially like, oh, wait, maybe this project would, um, would be frowned upon by certain groups or would be controversial or polemical. I just thought it was an important topic. Um, I thought that there is, there are these injustices that I'm seeing on the ground that I'm reading about, that I'm learning from folks at, at Michigan. Jason De Leon, for example, was at Michigan. And I remember reading his work and being um, like com completely convinced that we need to do things to change things. Um, and one, one thing, one thing that we can do is shed light on some of the processes that make, uh, border enforcement and some of the situations that border enforcement creates, like incarceration, um, deportation, um, precarization of labor. When you think about folks that are being deported and then end up doing, um, gig work for companies in the U.S. and like call centers in, in Mexico. Um, so all of these things were kind of like up in the air when I started doing the research and I thought, okay, I need to contribute. I want to contribute to this. So opportunities. By doing this work, then there's so many um, opportunities, both at the funding level, but also at within my own institution that was interested in supporting scholarship that wanted to contribute to ongoing issues, ongoing big societal issues. Um, so that was a benefit. It's like, there's already interest in this and um, that allowed, that gave me an opportunity to then conduct this work. For example, I got a digital studies fellowship from Library of Congress. Um, and they wouldn't be, I wouldn't have gotten that in that fellowship if I was wasn't doing work on either on digital media or on borders. Um, limitations, um, even though I have my politics and they're, they're pretty transparent, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to my interlocutors and tell them, oh, this this project is not critical of border making. Um, I'm that's I'm incapable of doing that. That being said, I I do want to give all of my interlocutors, and by interlocutors, I mean the people I write about, the, the actors I write about, give them 
um, kind of their fair share or the, their fair um, attention, a fair chance to kind of state out their positions. Um, even though I have that kind of ethical disposition as a researcher, um, that has been a challenge. It's gaining access to um, like border patrol officers or gaining access to engineers who do research and development with defense manufacturers. Like that has been difficult, at least for me. Um, there are ways of trying to gain access to them. Um, especially if you're doing more ethnographic work. Um, I wanted to do oral history work, which is slightly different. I wanted to think about their contributions historically, and just maybe folks weren't as interested in doing that um, or something else intervened there. But that has been a serious limitation, right? Is thinking about because there's so much uh, at stake for so many actors, um, some people will be very guarded. And I understand why. Um, so then it's figuring out, well, how can I navigate those gates? How can I, and that's where the kind of methodological, um, my methodological approach comes into gear and, and drawing a range of materials together and thinking about them in a more kind of semiotic way or discursive way. Um, that's where, uh, that, that was the solution I came up with. Um, so, and in doing that, and in general in your work, you have sort of straddled across disciplines and integrated, right? Um, multiple disciplines with a focus on the digital in one way or the other, right? Um, American studies, history, STS, Latina, Latino, Latinx studies. Um, what are some lessons that you have learned from what I might call a more itinerant uh, approach to knowledge making than staying within one sort of uh, territory um, that you can pass along? Because it's not, even though you have, I mean, you engage it by the object and sometimes in the literature, but not in a disciplinary way, the discipline of communication or media studies, there are many similarities in sort of this itinerant scholarship, right? That's what I call it, as what you find among people who are rooted in communication, look at the digital and then going to STS a little bit, going to Latin American studies or you know, African American studies, etc. Um, so, so what are some lessons that you have learned from operating in this way? from working in this way. Yeah. Um, by working in this way, that allows me to maintain, um, to create a center around which everything moves. And then as I shift from one discipline or one frame or one field to another, I can also shift this center and then see what else is around the center. Um, and at the end of, of the project, by, move, by moving all these different centers, I, I feel like I can gain insight into a greater layered um, understanding of the situation. And that has been really 
uh, transformative for me is thinking about situations um, like the work of Lucy Suchman or Sus um, Susan Lee Starr, like thinking about situations and the different aspects that go into making of situations and making of entities. And, um, and the only way, I feel the only way to do that um, justice is by tapping into different conversations. Now that generates a, a difficulty because some fields are very guarded, like anthropology is super guarded, history is super guarded. So I'm, I'm in many ways, I'm very, I'm interdisciplinary, but I'm also very undisciplined. <laughs> um, and I'm undisciplined in the sense that I, I don't follow strict guidelines. Um, and, and I, I am very itinerant. And then the challenge becomes when I go and engage with folks in history or folks that are in anthropology and whatever other field, like I, I need to do a lot of work um, to kind of demonstrate the rigor of that, of the research and the project to, so, to kind of convince them that, that, that this way of understanding this phenomenon in a historical way, but through these other lenses and frames, that that is historical enough, or that that is anthropological enough. Um, so that has been, for example, challenging, but I feel like I was, I'm still able to do it well when I went into the job market. So when I went into the job market, that's, that's actually what we have to do when we're interdisciplinary scholars is like, if the position is in history, well, how is this project history? How, and if I'm applying to a media studies position, how is this media studies? Um, so that becomes challenging, moving, putting multiple hats. Um, so, um, so that's tough. Uh, <laughs> um, and it's uh, very exhausting, um, but, at the end of the day, I feel, I feel like that it's the most rewarding approach um, and at least the most rewarding for me. Um, okay, no, that's excellent. And then going from you know lessons to wishes, if you had magical powers that could be granted one wish about how you would like the study of digital media to change, what would you wish for? Um, I would say I would want greater recognition and engagement with Latinas, Latinos, and Latinas in digital media and computing. So like from thinking about their labor and sociocultural practices to like their theorizations and scholarly contributions. So not just at the participant actor level, but at the scholarly secondary source level as well. I mean, I, I feel like Latinas, Latinos, Latinas, and Latin Americans more broadly have historically contributed to understanding and making digital life worlds. And yet dominant approaches in the field of digital and media studies tend to treat them as like addenda, if at all. Like they're treated as like the week of Latinos in media or the week of, um, and, and here I'm like, thinking of um, 
scholars like um, Washington and American studies who, who asked like, what would happen if we put um, black studies at the center of American studies? Well, I think what would happen if we put Latino studies at the center of digital media studies or digital studies? Um, and this is where I find like, you know, inspiration in the works of a bunch of folks. And again, thinking like historically of, of actors, but also of scholars, like I'm thinking of like maquila workers that I'm, you know, I'm currently developing a project on and community organizers and maquilas, like their work is central to the history of computing and yet very little is said. Um, and the things that were said, like from folks like Chela Sandoval, who wrote this amazing article, Reentering Cyberspace in the 1990s, forgotten, not, not discussed as part of the conversation of what made digital media, what made digital life words. Alex Rivera's work on, um, on thinking about drones and informational labor. Um, Ricardo Dominguez, who was doing um, cyber activism way before um, Anonymous. Um, Mario Martinez, who's like soldiering things and making Santos out of hardware. Um, scholars like Catherine Suramirez, Hector Beltran, Melissa Villanicolas, there's so many folks that are doing such important work. And when you engage the literature on digital media studies or SDS about information and all of that, these scholars, these actors, they're, they're not, they're usually not there. Um, and I mean, a, a text like uh, Donna Haraway's um, Cyborg Manifesto relied on Latino scholars, like queer Latinas um, uh, and their theorizations. Like it was, they made possible that kind of scholarship and yet that kind of is forgotten. I, and so, yeah, it would be like, what would happen if we put Latino studies at the center? And on that very important note, thank you very much, Ivan. This was a great conversation. Thank you to our audience uh, for staying with us uh, through the end. And I want to invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thanks again, Ivan. This was spectacular. Thank you. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson.